Welcome to the Pilot Boys Podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. And here are your hosts, Vishwant and Partha. Welcome back to the Pilot Boys Podcast. We have an extremely special interview today with the one and only streetball legend, Bone Collector a.k.a. Larry Williams. Um, What's up, fellas? Gotten a chance to work with you quite a bit over the last, uh, the last year. And, um, play, and play a little bit of ball. Yeah. A little something. A little Scored fun. a couple points on you. That's a, that's a memorable experience, even though you let us do it. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. We had some fun, though. We had some good yeah. times. We definitely did. And, uh, you know, we'll get, we'll get more into the collection. Uh, the Lasso Bone Collector collection in a little bit, but we're just really excited to interview you um, and and talk about your story, man, because I think you have a really unique story um, that fits into mm-hmm. the the landscape of not just basketball, but basketball culture, understanding um, the development of streetball culture into the mainstream. You are kind of at the center of that. Um, mm-hmm. And now it's kind of rolled into now fits right into the social media generation, right? You used to have to go to uh, Foot Locker and grab the And One mixtapes to watch your guys' footage. Now mm-hmm. we can just go to YouTube or we can go to inst- your Instagrams and watch them, um, mm-hmm. which is which is interesting. But let's start. Let's start here at the beginning of your basketball journey. Um, what mm-hmm. what attracted you initially to the game of basketball? How old were you, and when did you first start? really recognizing that you had talent what attracted me to the game of basketball was my dad really he wanted me to come out and play with him on the weekends and i was about five years old um i didn't like the sport to start with because my dad's really competitive so he made it to where it was more than just a fun game it was like life or death for him so you know you learn you learn something different when you see someone playing that hard and as a kid i didn't see the significance and then by the time I was seven, eight years old, you know, I would score, you know, 40, 50 points in these games for kids. And I would be doing all these crazy moves. And my dad used to say, because I just stopped the, the whole crowd would just wait to just see my, our games. And, you know, I, I had a small buzz going. And my dad said, you really got something. You got a special talent. Um, I was so about eight years old. I started to take it more serious. And from there on, it became like a driving passion. That's pretty amazing. I mean, just to have that level of focus at eight, dude, like what, what were you like in school and like the other aspects of your life? Like, did that translate in your intensity? Yes. Um, then that's a great question. The reason why I've got so good so fast is because when I was young, the, the most popular thing to do would, was to go out on the weekends and um, go to dancing or go to the skating rink. You know, those are those are big yeah. or the arcade. And every Saturday and Sunday when all the kids were out doing that, I was in the backyard pretending like I was playing Michael Jordan. And I started to, you know, embrace the game. And then even in school, lunchtime, instead of me, sometimes, you know, there was lunchtime basketball games. You know, you get real sweaty before fifth period, go out there and, and show your talent and do all that. But because I had Rolodex my lifestyle, I knew that I needed a certain amount of grades to try to go and do what I wanted. So I was just study. I would just stay and do all my homework at lunch. 
And then wow. by the time after school came, when all the kids had to go home and do their homework, I would be at the parks playing. And I felt like it was an advantage for me because I've already done my homework. I'm already working on my game. They got to spend at least an hour on their homework. So I'm an hour <laughs> better than them. You know, even that little hour I thought was good enough. You know, they come in the gym and see me and they're like, oh, you already in here? Man, you know, so you, you know, it's that old, that old saying, the early bird catches the worm. So I thought that was, you know, my advantage to be in the gym at all times, to make sure I was mentally and physically ahead of my opponents at all times, starting from a young age. That's amazing. So it's nice, you know, basketball now is becoming a sport where, you know, I personally consider it the hardest league, obviously, to get into um, at mm -hmm. the professional level, at the NBA level. But at each phase, there's a filter, right? You got to make mm -hmm. your middle school team. Then you got to make your, your varsity team. And mm -hmm. then you've got um, coaches and structure, which is very different than, you know, obviously how you were playing growing up. Um, you, as you said, you were dropping 50 points on people at eight years old. But then was it a tough transition for you to go from that playing the part, playing against your friends uh, to organized basketball um, on your high school team? Yeah. Um, when you are so-called a freelance player or quote unquote streetball player, which I was start to start by the time and it started before high school, um, by the time you get on a, a team that has uh, some sort of structure, you you struggle with the balance of understanding what the team wants and then what you want. So when I was in eighth grade, um, I was on a team and I was good, but my coach couldn't use me because I wasn't paying attention to his regulations and what he needed. And that was, you know, learning to use my weapons to make the team better instead of me just always looking good on the floor, looking like I knew what I was doing. Um, you know, and a good example is we're in the next first half and um, there's no shot clock. And so there's like, a, I can't, can't remember around the time, but I remember the coach saying, hold the ball, hold the ball. So it's probably like 25 seconds or so left. And when he said, hold the ball, hold the ball. In my head, I heard, <laughs> I heard, get a bucket, you know, get him out the way, hold the ball, hold it at the top. Obviously, as I've matured, I know he wanted me to hold that basketball until maybe seven seconds or so and then try to do a move to get the so they don't get another shot. But my adjustment wasn't there at a young age. I didn't I didn't know that, you know, you kind of make up your own narrative. So I chose to go to the basket, even though I scored, the other team got the ball and they came down and scored and he chewed me out and he was telling me all these things and I was confused. And then he thought and I thought about it later, like. Oh, he wanted me to not give them an opportunity to come back and score. That's why he wanted me to wait so long to to start my movements before I I uh, did that. So that was my first adjustment to learning to play organized basketball and the difference between the both the the two. And then in high school, it was more of an effort thing. When I was in school, you had to be, you know, an Olympic athlete. In my in my in my eyes, I was jo I'm joking, but my coach wanted us to be good at you know running, jumping, boxing out, and and mm -hmm. and calling screens and that wasn't had nothing to do with what I was taught out you know in, in the parks you know you you hustle but I didn't know there was a technique to defense you know there's something that you need to do to make sure the team is cohesive there's communication blah blah, blah. so 
I would get on these teams in high when I got on my team in high school, I was so good, but I thought it was corny to call out, hey, watch out, here comes that screen. You know, I thought that was corny. Yeah. Or hey, 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 the shot's going up. I thought that was corny. I thought it was too much going on for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. But as I record, I realized all those are key points and key activation points in basketball. You hear you can be guarding your man. Shot, shot, shot. Now you know to find your man and box him out, right? Yeah. Someone says cutting back door and you're denying, and then you get beat. You know from hearing your teammates say cutting back door that you should turn your hand the opposite way and slide back. And all these things I had to learn. And the road and the journey was tough, but it did make me a more complete athlete. And later on, it helped me when I was able to play against pros. Did anything from that kind of like traditional basketball strategy kind of team thinking world find application in your street ball like were you able to utilize any of the other perspective that you had learned to improve your street ball game and yes um to answer your question all the perspectives that i learned you know just learning the organized game it made my street ball skill set uh unique it made me one of a kind it gave me uh if ta- the the i guess the best metaphor if you Rolodex what the Tasmanian devil does, it's weaponized, right? Mm. So the Tasmanian devil being a all over the place sort of character, if he gets under control, each spin can be used for something different. Each time he twirls, he can stop. And my thing is, I, I needed that to kind of, without that, I think my skill set wouldn't be as notarized even though it was very good but right now it's notarized throughout the world because it does translate to both sides and i have some of my you know closest friends who are pros they come to me for advice these are you know all-stars in the nba come to me for dribbling advice and if it wasn't the structure behind it i don't think they would embrace it as much interesting it's like it's it's nice because I think it's a framework that applies across your whole life, which I think a lot of people take a while to pick up, which is that you have there's so much within us that is always like wanting to come out. But if yeah. you don't find that and really give it the right lane for the right application, you're never going to find success in anything. Yeah, and I agree. And it's also translated to um, even you and I part that we've been you know, good friends for years now. And in order for us to build what we're, we've built together, it took a lot of patience. It took a lot of trial and error, and we're still in a phase of trial and error. So sure. that understanding, that, you know, that understanding of there's a different side, I had to learn your world in order to be in your world. And I'm still learning. So it, it works, as you said, all throughout your, your life and your lifestyle, depending on what type of person you are, you can use that sort of mental approach to kind of roll it ex- your own situations yeah yeah, yeah. And, and you know just just giving back like that's that's the other part here right when you truly love something uh you don't let the doors close on you the doors that other people create for you close on them you open your own doors right you you realize very early on that maybe the organized basketball traditional basketball lane wasn't what was built for you right you did go to college you did play but very early on even though they probably told you hey you're not good enough to make it to the nba you're not good enough to make it to 
the next level because you have a love, a genuine love for the game of basketball, you continue to play. And that was kind of the next phase, which is you went from um, kid in Texas growing up in California. Tell us how you first set foot in New York and, and onto the, the legendary Rucker basketball court where the, the, the notoriety of the streetball legend um, came to be. Yep. Um, so what started my career with um, streetball was the 1999. It was a, um, I was incarcerated and I happened to see on my last few days there, they were bringing in these tapes and these tapes were and one mixtapes at the time. No one knew what they were, but you can see the chaos in front of the, in the TV room. These guys wasn't sitting down. What you know? I thought they were watching some crazy movie, and so I, I eventually creep over there and I look, and I'm like blown away by the fact that there's like an actual league for my style of playing. It seemed like it seemed like to me, like my style was more freestyle. You know, I'll make this move up on you, and I just, and now I watched the whole, you know, thirty minute tape on numerous players doing this in numerous courts, and so I was confused. Like you know, I thought you know being from LA, is this a different part of the world? Like, is this another universe we're in? Like, what is this going on? So I knew for a fact that if I got a chance to even display my talent there, that I would make a name for myself. So when I was let let go, when I got out of my incarceration, I took myself from LA to New York. And um, the story is interesting because I didn't actually um, I went up there for a showcase and I did really good. I got recruited by some guys. But the second time I went back, I felt like if you go there, you're going to have to owe someone something. If you go anywhere in life and you do something and you're good at it, if they put you in a situation to show that talent, you'll owe them something. And I felt like to start, I didn't want to do that. Right. So um, interesting enough, I chose to play possum. So I would dress real bummy and crazy. For, um, I used to wear tall socks and Chuck Taylors. Now, you're in, I'm in New York. The only person with a do-rag on that's white and hanging real long, long high socks, a tank top, long shorts, Chuck Taylors. Now, mind you, I was, I was you know, 170, so I wasn't, all, I wasn't big. I wasn't anything. They were just, you know, I just felt like people would like, look at me like, oh, I don't want to pick him, not knowing I have been working on my skills on a, such a crazy level that any time I tested the floor, it was going to be a problem. And I knew it was. So I, I was kind of like playing possum, playing possum. And then every Sunday, I would go and no one would pick me. And then I would just call next and I would just tear up the whole court, right? And eventually, I keep my, hearing my name buzzing. And was they weren't calling me bone collector. They were calling me body bag because I was making people fall and all that stuff right at first. Man, this dude, I think they call him body bag over here. And they used to also, rest in peace, Escalade, they used to call me Larry from Texas. They never gave me the nickname. Um, and then, um, then they also gave me a third nickname, which was the Little Apple. That was, those were my first original nicknames. <laughs> wow. Because he's not from uh, New York, but he plays like he's from, you know, the city. So I had no, no one knew who I was, but they were every Sunday. And then it would build up and build up and build up. And they were like, yo, listen, we're going to bring you out to a game. Like, this is nuts. We got to see if it works in a real game. So shout out to my guy, my block, a.k.a. Jay Monster, brought me out to a game. And I didn't do well the first half. And they wrote an article about it in um, the Slam magazine. 
I had five points and three fouls in the first half playing against like one of the top teams in Rucker. And I was ready to cry. I'm just being honest because I'm not in a situation where you're just like missing shots. You got people pointing in your face, like on the New York benches, like you're this and you're that. And you're not going to, you know, they're like heckling, heckling. So when I say cry, I meant, you know, I mean, my spirit was damaged. Like these guys hate me. <laughs> like my skills, what I thought didn't work. And then so I was like, you know, I remember what my, in this great message, then that shout out to my dad. I remember my dad told me, anytime you're having a bad game, it's the only two things you can do to fix that. And that's let you, don't let your man score and make your free throws. Be aggressive to the basket. Regardless of what the outcome is, if your man can't score and then you're getting to the free throw line, you're going to help your team, right? He, so he gave me those professional, um, those sort of more to organized uh, sort of information to help me. Then, and I applied it and ended up finishing the game. I had scored 35 points in the second half, finished the game with 40. And I, the way I did it was special because no one ever saw someone fall like multiple times. And I was making, you know, people fall in that second half like every other play. Wow. And running over the court. And that's the first time I've seen people storm a court, too. Uh, and I threw it through a guy's legs. He fell. I jumped over him. I laid the ball up to send us to overtime. They stormed the court and chaos and pandemonium. My first real experience with New York street ball. And so my journey started with just that, me being a player who was good at the sport and then trying to find my way. And then leading on further and further, I had built or started to build a reputation for being a very dangerous player. And by the end of the season, one of my good friends called me like, yo, you got to give you a better name. Um, I think it's Bone Collector. And at the time, there was a movie out called The Bone Collector with Angelina Jolie and Denzel Washington. And I thought it wouldn't translate. so. I thought it would be too much to think about, right? And then so I yeah. get in the park. They start saying my name. Just so happens the first five games they start announcing me as the bone collector. The paramedics are outside carrying guys to the emergency and things and so on and so forth because they're hitting their fingers and pulling hamstrings and, and twisting ankles and so on and so forth. So the narrative kind of was like a dream come true because you hear the guy on the mic, the bone collector, the bone, 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 the bone. Then you hear the ambulance coming up the street and they're parking outside the park because they already know I'm going to hurt somebody. So, wow. yeah, so the whole thing. Kinda That's like, ridiculous. Yeah, dude, it was almost like an actual movie. Like they, this should have been like a Netflix movie because. <laughs> yeah, honestly. I yeah, I, I didn't go to New York and say, I'm going to break people's ankles. You know, I just wanted to get notoriety for my skill set. And I did that. On top of that, I created a whole other genre of just making people fall. Even you know, and I don't take credit for anything. But we, when we talk about the world and its influences, I was already on mixtapes when you know I was already on these tapes um, when before it was a thing to be influ an influencer, so to speak, right? So mm -hmm. I was, you know, I was able to understand both sides of it as I was in it. You know, it was it was a very good mix because i knew that i was doing something special and new but i knew that there was no lane for it so i embraced it so much that i ended up being mvp five years in a row at rucker park and 
even to this day, people will always ask me, how was it, how was it playing on air one? Well, I tell them with no arrogance. Uh, well, my name was so synonymous with streetball that I never played in one. They just, my name was just big enough to be mentioned alongside that entire company. And yeah. when I tell people that they don't, you know, there's a big significance in that, which I think, which is what drives my core following to this day. That entire era of streetball was so special along with all those and one players. And then I was able to carve out a whole nother lane on top of that, you know, where I was the liaison from streetballs to the NBA. So I was able to, you know, take that and make something positive out of it. And that name, that name um, to this day, um, I can't forget that. Big shout out to David Seals. I can't forget that because I didn't believe in the name. And you know how they say you got to kind of live up to the name. Mm -hmm. um, that name is going much further than I ever thought it would go. Wow. That's amazing. I want to circle back just real quick to one thing, which is you said you moved to New York and, you know, even developing that skill set to embarrass people. You know, I've been the victim of the embarrassment part that has been as well, literally putting people on the ground. Like, you know, there's there's this 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 famous line um, about it taking 10,000 hours to master or perfect something. Take us into your journey of becoming that good of a ball handler, because clearly you were already there. You obviously must have practiced when you were incarcerated as well. Yeah. What drove you to first recognize that you had special ball handling skills and mm -hmm. second, get to that level um, in which you could you can you still can literally embarrass anybody you want to whenever you want to. Um, to answer your question, what drove me to start was, um, like I said, my father's, all his information. So from, from five to 18, all that information he gave me, it was almost unfair. He literally weaponized me as an athlete. So I had no choice but to get better because he never let me settle with just one move. Like I would make up moves. Even to this day, I still create and recreate moves so I can make them better and better and more efficient. So that was the driving factor. My father being that he put so much information into my, my head as a child that I knew that there is no ceiling to the, if you have the blueprint for something, then there's no ceiling because you can recreate and recreate the structure. So that was my initial driving force. And then my skill set wouldn't, you know, just the thought behind it was good enough, but I knew that there was a physical part of it that would I require. So I would do things that were way unorthodox and I didn't with nobody watching or anything like I would run up the stairs of Harlem's polo grounds. Now, mind you, you know, those New York steps aren't always, you know, the tidiest. If you get my joke, <laughs> there's some things, but there's some things up them steps. Right. So I learned I would take the ball and I would dribble and, you know, you can't dribble on every every step. So we dribble, pick the ball up. And every time I see something where I couldn't dribble, I would pretend like I'm passing to one of my teammates. So my, my reactions would be immediate. So I was always almost working on hand-eye coordination and running stairs at the same time, right, getting in shape. And then there was also, uh, you know, in New York, they have a nice train system. Like, and down, down below, everyone is, the train goes everywhere. So the, the easiest way for me to work on, like, maneuvering is I would take my basketball and I would take the train from uh, Rucker Park all the way down to like 42nd Street. But I would get out on every stop 
if I could or any stop I can get out on and I would just dribble through whatever's going on. And if I'm talking, that's crazy. It's a lot of people in New York and you lose that ball and people are really rude in New York as far as being in their way. So I was, you know, teeing off a lot of people, P-I-S-S-I, you know, off a little people because I'm all in their face on all these moves and they're like, man, I'm trying to get to work. So (laughs) um, I just took that as an opportunity to be more coherent with my surroundings. And if I figured if you can dribble through a subway, you can dribble through anything. I said in an interview a long time ago um, in Rucker Park, they're like, well, why do you work on your skills? How do you do it? And I said, listen, let's get out the train. You can dribble through a subway, you can dribble through anything. So I would do little things like that. And then I played when things were, the lights were on. Of course, I was bone collector. I played in Rucker Park. But when those lights went off is where my skill set grew. Because after Rucker, me and my friends would stay out and play until two in the morning, three on three, one on one, whatever. And all my friends were good. Shout out Homicide, Corey Williams, shout out David Seals, the Enigma. Um, these guys were, you know, top athletes. And we would play to the death almost. Julius Hodges was one of my favorite players to play against. He went he was he went to the NBA, ended up playing with the Nuggets. Julius Hodges, we would play all night long. Like we play all night and he was getting ready to go to college at the time. He was a ridiculous player, six, nine, crazy handles, could dunk, shoot anything you wanted. And those are wars. Like I'm talking night in, night out. Then I would go down to these projects where no one, there is no glitz and glamour where we got like just the, the guys who are basically running those projects, all the street guys, all the, the hustlers and all that. And I would go and play their best player for money to build. I want to build character. And I'm going to tell you, some of those games didn't always end the best when you got people out there with uh, firearms and, and so on and so forth trying to protect their neighborhoods. You go in there and beat their best player. They don't always want you to leave with open arms and open handshakes. So I learned also how to communicate with people. I learned if I'm going to be, you know, if I'm going to be in these environments, I have to speak the language. Being I came from L.A., I learned that you have to adapt to your environment, period. So there was more than just basketball journeys that I learned outside of just training. I was training my mind as well and also playing against some of the most ridiculous talent. Like one guy I never forget, he wanted to play me one on one. And I thought he had to go upstairs and get changed because he got on Timberlands. He got on cargo shorts and he just finished doing pull ups on the pull up bar. So he's, he's really like big and he walk into the park like, where's this dude that I'm supposed to play? And I'm like, man, go get your shoes. He's like, I'm not playing like this. So I'm like, I want to beat him easy. You know, he got on Timberlands. This dude was so strong and athletic. I, I you know, totally did. I'm not paying attention to this guy doing muscle up on the, on the bench press over here, on the, on the bars, pull-up bars. He's doing 100 pull-ups. Of course, he's a physical specimen and an athlete. Wow. I learned immediately not to judge a book by his cover. And it was one of the toughest games. Although I won, I had to learn how to play defense on someone taller and physically more opposing than I am with wisdom instead of with force. Because if I had used a lot of force, I would have lost. That outwit him, pull the chairs, you know, fake the fake the steals, um, bait him to shoot, you know, let him post up, get comfortable, and then foul him real hard, so he can be, feel like he's ready to fight me, so I can see where his heart is. Because sometimes, you know, that's all that could be smoking mirrors, you know, just because a guy looks intimidating, it could just be smoking mirrors. Come to find out, it was. And 
So those elements were, are what created sort of the engine to push and thrive to be and live up to that name Bone Collector. And all those elements, you know, from back from when my father teaching me, all those things kind of led up and it's continued, even to this day, it continues to push me and, and drive. Yeah, we talked a little bit about the and one and one mixtape culture, but specifically, I remember, you know, as a kid who grew up watching basketball, loving basketball, the Entertainers Basketball League every summer in New York was literally like an all-star game, right? Every celebrity, every rapper, everybody in the community was there. Oftentimes, some of the some of the more prominent celebrities actually uh, operated and ran the teams. Um, Take us into that kind of becoming a celebrity. Essentially, you are a basketball player, and suddenly you become a celebrity, and you are recognized as the best player in this EBL league. Take us into kind of like the background of what people would do to try to get you on their teams. Oh man, some of the fun stuff that happened during that time. Um, there's a lot of stories I could tell, but I'll tell I'll tell you something that, and it's a good question. That's a great question. I've never been asked that. Because, you know, I, of course I've been bribed in the Bone Collector in New York. I've been bribed a lot. So this story is going to start somewhere and then end on a, it's going to sound like a downer, but it's it's actually just as part of the story. So I would always get approached to play on all these teams um, once my name got popular. Once I became solidified that year, the Bone Collector, I mean, if from from shoes to cars to you name it, Coaches would offer me just straight out money. I remember Fat Joe offered me a few things to play on some of his teams. Jay-Z and those guys, you know, they were huge musicians. And I was seeing these guys for the first time, seeing them bring in Stefan Mulberry and Shaquille O'Neal and all these people just to play on a streetball team. I'm like, well, they couldn't be out here for free, you know? You know, I'm thinking to myself, like, these guys are in the NBA. I'm marrying as a game this next, you know, next season. He's playing on Fat Joe's team. What's the situation there, right? Um, Started to find out that not only does money talk um, in New York, but it, when you have a certain status, the money is irrelevant. People will do what they have to do to get you on their team if you have that status and that skill set. So I would get approached by everybody to do, you know, back, you know, back alley games and come to my park up here. We'll give you a hundred dollars. If you play in this game, mind you, I've never been paid to play it once, right? Mm-hmm. I was just coming from L.A., just playing outside of my friends. Now they're offering me money to go and do what I already love. Obviously, I turned down no one. I <laughs> every single dime from everybody. I'll go anywhere. I'll play. Because, yeah. you know, it reminded me of my old lunchtime games. You know, my friends would be like, yo, this guy over here saying you can't beat him. And if we win, we get a whole box of pizza. And, you know, when you were a kid, a whole box of pizza is like $100, you yeah, know, yeah. in our eyes. It's like getting 100 bucks because all your friends can share a pizza. And I'm like, well, I'll go, of course I'll go beat them for that pizza, right? You know, you're trying to help your friends get to get a nice meal, blah, blah, blah. Well, on the flip side, these guys are telling you, you know, here's the guy will say, here's $3,000. And you're like, what are, what are you looking at? Like, what I got to do for this, bro? Come on now. Well, what's up? And he's like, nah, just pull up to the park. We'll get, you just got to, you know, we put, we're going to pick you up. You hop out the car with me. You go in there. You go for 40. We leave. So I felt like that was the easiest job ever, you know? So I, 
<laughs> so I would go and, and do these things over and over again to the point where it almost is like an, a, a game. Like it, it was a market being created. And before that was before the annual mixtape was even in my jurisdiction, you know, that those guys weren't approaching me yet. This is just on the street, in the street money. And then I would ended up later on getting to the conclusion. There was a New York versus California game. And, and normally I play with New York, but I'm from California. So I play with California. Now, before I played in the California versus New York game, I played against Boston, played against Philly. I played against Chicago, Nate Robinson and Jamal Crawford and so on and so forth. Right. All the talent they have from those cities and we beat them all. Then we get to L.A. The team switch because I'm from L.A. and our team is really cheating. It's me, Baron Davis, Gilbert Arenas, the rapper of the game. Um, like, we got a stupid squad. Like, and then all the stars from all those years, from those high, those college years, from UCLA, Ray Young and all those guys, right? Yeah. Our team is so stacked that it's almost comic, comedic to us to even have to play this game, right? We beat New York. I get into an altercation and there's shots fired right after the game, right? That was, and I'm only bringing that up to say the game itself is played within the lines, but when you're a, a known athlete, there's always a game played outside the lines. People are betting on you. Uh, mm-hmm. I feel for LeBron and, and Giannis and all these guys who are playing in these, on these big franchises. They're trying to keep things together between the lines, and Lord knows what they deal with outside the lines. Trying to mm-hmm. keep yeah. them winning. Um, coaches, critics, reporters create narratives. Like they live in a, it's a whole nother bubble they live in as far as that goes. My good friend Kyrie Irving experienced some of that this year, where because of his, you know, personal reasons, he's only allowed to play on road games. I'm pretty sure. He doesn't get the best ovations everywhere he goes because of this situation. That's, you know, two worlds. And I think that what it does is when you do that, uh, and to answer your question, uh, that was around the early 2000s when my name sort of hit that point where I knew I was popular and I knew people wanted to see my talent. But with that being said, you learn something very valuable within that. You learn that you don't have to actually force yourself to be accepted when you're good at something because people will notice it. And then you have to, from there, you have to watch exactly what you do and stick to your yeses and nos. And that's a good thing that I learned that helped me in the business world too, because you can have a bunch of meetings about different things in business world. And if they're all maybes, then nothing gets done. So, you know, you have to stick to your yeses and nos. And that's kind of how I worked in the streetball world too, where, you know, you want to, go out and perform and do these things. These guys want to play. You say no, but you got to be prepared for what comes with no. And you say yes, you got to be prepared for what comes with yes. Yep, yep. We're going to have a little fun about some of your key moments here. One of the most viral things that happened was you uh, you embarrassed uh, quite possibly the greatest athlete and the greatest boxer in the world recently mm-hmm. on the court. Um, Floyd Mayweather, mm-hmm. if nothing else, is known for his defensive skills. Clearly, they didn't translate to uh, defending the bone collector. <laughs> Tell, take us into that moment and what, what you were thinking when you saw him uh, beat up on you and, 
Yeah. <laughs> and did you feel bad about embarrassing him? Like so, that? That's a good, another good question. So I've known Floyd for years. And yeah. the story started years ago. Floyd threw a celebrity game with Roy Jones in 2001 or two. And it, I was on his team, me, Floyd, and so on. And so we played against Roy Jones and those guys. And Floyd never... We never had confrontation, but he would always, I could tell he always was like, you know, I'm not, I'm not like these other guys. Like when, when I, we play, it's going to be different. You know, he would say that back then, right? Kind of give me that energy. <laughs> and even though I was on his team, he was still talking trash basically. Right. <laughs> so we were friends. We were good friends throughout that time. And then Floyd's career went to a whole nother stratosphere. You know, when, once he started being known as the undisputed best fighter of all time because he never lost. So, and which hands down, he, in my opinion, there's no, nobody better on defense or just as a boxer with the footwork and so on and so forth. And it's comparable, but, you know, Floyd is in a class all on his own. I don't think he has a class that he can be compared to because mm -hmm. he never fluctuated in weight classes. He never did anything but stick to his guns. So he is, he has mastered his craft. So yeah. shout out to yeah. Floyd. So as the, yeah, so as the years went on, we we played in a lot of different celebrity games together. So finally, I get him a call from uh, Gronkowski, um, and Gronkowski's having a like a charity game, and it's I think it's Gronkowski, Snoop Dogg, and you know Floyd and his team, Gronkowski and his team. So I'm giving you the long story. The reason why. I, was probably the greatest play of all time for me. So we get in the locker room and starting to notice that it's Gronkowski's brother, his, his uncle, his aunt on my team. And I'm, I'm exaggerating his aunt, but, you know, just guys who aren't just trying to win a game. They're just here to have fun, right? Yeah. And I'm noticing that I go down and look on Floyd's team. They got lethal shooter. They got two overseas guys. They got... <laughs> <laughs> they Floyd doesn't play to lose ever. No, Floyd is there for the business. He got my good friend. His name is um, Seven and Some Chain, Rashid Bird. He's seven feet. He's a shot blocker. I'm looking at him like, you're playing in this game too? And I was like, so all you guys are on that team. So I'm already thrown off like, wait, Floyd is planning on destroying us with all this talent, right? So, <laughs> and so I, I don't take it personally. I tell the Gronkowski and him, hey, I can already see what the narrative is here. You know, before that happens, remember two things. Let's have some fun and blah, blah, blah. So we all have fun. So before the game, Floyd just, you know, we're having our little conversation. And he's, he taps my, if, I was, if you had the video running, he, he tapped my shirt, like, grabbed me, like, don't start that bull crap. Like, word for word. I said, don't start that. And I told him, hey, I only got one mode I play in, right? So we create a narrative already. That was the, before the tip ball. So they go to tip the ball up. He knocks it out. They knock it out of bounds. My teammate takes it out and throws it to me. Now, mind you, this is the first play of the game. I can't have wrote this. This is just how it happened. I, I wanted to say I have my first chance to show Floyd why he should never play me again, right? In my head. So I have, I have things that I weaponized already, and I'm just unleashing him and see how you react. So the mm -hmm. first thing I do for Floyd is I hit him with one of my the moves where I want to test your equilibrium. So I do the move, and I notice that he's, like, doing the matrix. His body's moving. <laughs> I said, holy, if he's moved doing the matrix, he's not going to be able to deal with these next two. So the next one is, um, and kids, if you're listening, 
you should always roll it extra moves because all you have to do is unweaponize them and unleash them. People react to them. You don't have to do much. So I started on my second move. I said, oh, his body's moving crazy. So let me see if I could nutmeg him. If he allows me to nutmeg him and still keep my dribble, that means he's kind of, he's lost. He doesn't see the ball. He doesn't know what's going on. Because, you know, as a defender, no one's going to mm-hmm. dribble up to you and just throw the ball between your legs without you at least putting a hand there, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, for, for me and I, I, I might. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what I mean. Like, yeah. if you're aware of it, you can, yeah. you know. But I noticed that, and we're talking about Floyd, so I'm not assuming he's, I never go into a situation assuming someone's not top tier. And Floyd is the top, the highest tier. Best footwork of any athlete ever, probably, right? Right, so I figure that. <laughs> If he's not aware of that hand, because I think he was get his hand in there, then it's a you know that's there's another way I see him unstable. So I did it. I did the move. He was like still kind of like moving weird, and then I wanted to test his brakes. Is what I call it. Test their brakes. So you 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 start up with a move that immediately goes from zero to a hundred, and then you just pull your brakes. You pull your parachute, and you see what happens, right? And if they're not stable. More than likely, they're going to fall or something, right? <laughs> so I, I unleashed these in a sequence to the point where it's like a dance step. The first one happened, the second one happened, and then the last one happened. I took a dribble and stopped, and I just remember him leaned over, looking me right in my face, sliding, though, like <laughs> <laughs> And as he was sliding, and then I shot the ball, I just remember him looking up at the shot. And then when it went in, the crowd screamed and went crazy. I watched his sons and all of those guys running around with video recorders. <laughs> Gronkowski and them and Nate Robinson almost broke my shoulder. They punched me up for like a good two, three minutes. They got me in the crowd just punching me like this. Snoop is screaming. Cal Kuzma, they're going crazy on my bench, right? And mind you, it's the first play of the game. The nostalgia <laughs> in the gym was like almost like a like I was the undertaker in WWE. Like everywhere I went, people were like, you're the one who just made Floyd fall, huh? I was like, yeah, I don't, I didn't mind you. I never, I didn't know it was already viral. Yeah. That one, that one got so big. Yeah. It was before halftime. It was already on sports center. It was everywhere. So, and, but in the first play of the game, so I couldn't finish the game really. And I'm going to tell you as far as rest moments, now, I got the ball, mind you, had to play a whole game. The best feeling ever is to know you're dealing with an actual, like, sensei in the, in the text of experts. Like, I knew Floyd was a sensei. I knew when he was an expert at what he was doing, but he would not get close to me again. He never got <laughs> He kept his distance. He never – it made me feel so good because I know how hard he's worked all his life to be as good as he is at what he's doing. So it meant yeah. that all the stuff I worked hard at all my life was a little stronger than his on in our particular profession. And it was a lot more dangerous because Floyd's not, he's very smart. He wouldn't, he's already felt the fire. So he was like keeping himself at a distance. Like, I don't want to get burned. And what it taught me was, you don't have to grow up and be somebody. You were born somebody. What kind of work you want to put in? What kind of things you want to do to make sure your craft is met on your standards? And once that happened, I mean, it gave me the confidence to speak and kind of use my, you know, verbal approach to help kids get better at what they're doing. 
And those little moments and sometimes can change a person. And it changed me for sure because it gave me more of a motivational speaking aspect to just playing basketball where I can help kids regardless where I'm playing or not. I can give them information that I've actually been through to help their lives. That's great. That's awesome. Another, another story that I have to ask you about as well is there's an urban legend uh, that you were playing in China and you literally crossed somebody out of their shoes. Like Fact. their shoes came off. How that did happened. this happen? How did this happen? Oh, what did kind of shoes were they? They were, they were Nikes. I'll never forget them. They were red I Nikes. I hope he was wearing lasso socks at least. <laughs> right. He should have been. Because if he had on lasso socks, the shoes would have probably stayed together. <laughs> um, this guy, I remember um, the culture in China is they are, they respect what you do on the high level and they want to learn what you know. Yeah. So this guy is like, I want to learn what you know, but he keeps like uh, poking the cage, if you if you will. He's co- poking the cage. He's like, but I want to guard you. And I'm like, you don't want to do that. I want to show you the moves first. You keep asking to guard me, then you know you're going to have to guard me and it's not going to be good for you. So he's <laughs> like, I hear that. I hear that. But I see it on video. I don't know if it works the same in person. Like you're saying that. I say, okay. So now I'm now I have to take it personal. So now I'm like, well, check up. So I did the same thing. I, you know, I always have these moves rolodexed and I wanted to test them out. So when I threw it, and now this happened totally organic. There's no way I was knowing that this was going to happen and how he was going to react. But I remember I threw it through his legs and I did a move and I noticed that I saw something like spinning like a top on behind me and it was a shoe going in a circle like <laughs> on the floor. This is like a cartoon. So when I go back and look back and I see his shoe on the floor and those people in China went so crazy. They shared it on all their sites. And before you knew it, I was just signing people's shoes. I was walking around through China and people were just taking their shoes off like, sign this, <laughs> sign this, take my shoes off too. And the funny thing, as you mentioned that story, um, I've got the moniker of being able to make people fall all the time and it's just a blessing, but never in a million years would I think that 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 was going to happen where people, yeah. kids would run up to me like, yo, make me fall. You know? <laughs> so it's, like, a, it's a great feeling too. Is there like a caliber of player that wouldn't fall or is there anyone you ever couldn't make fall? No. <laughs> wow. Weapons are weapons, man. You know that. It don't matter where, what you know, situation you're in. When something's weaponized and it's dangerous enough, it works anywhere and everywhere. To your point is why the players I train now, um, Ben McLemore, Tyreek Evans, and the guys I work with now, these guys are so skilled that my ball handling and things I teach them have to translate on to the team they're with. Right. Mm-hmm. You can't even just do the moves anymore. Like we've weaponized it and got so intricate that we need to find out what the team playbook is. So you, we can do it on in that setting. That's how advanced it's gotten. Um, that's something that, you know, you learn over the years, kind of through trial and error. But, you know, to your point, there's a lot of different, you know, situations where the ball handling aspect has been thrown into these pigeonholed into these categories but the truth is there's no basketball player in the world that doesn't have to dribble that ball so it's needed you have to learn it 
And if you master something, doesn't matter what level they're on, they have to deal with the, the, the consequences, so to speak. They have to deal with what you've learned. And that's what I try to do. Even when I train my high school and collegiate athletes, I never tell them to play like me. I tell them to maximize what you know, and then we'll weaponize the rest. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you this. Um, cause I think it's a valuable question too. What makes it so difficult? You, you know, you are one of the world's best basketball players yet, you know, there's a different skill set that it takes to make it to the NBA and have an NBA career. What do you think is, is that difference that takes, cause I know, you know, a lot of like really, really good, almost impeccable basketball players, mm -hmm. they couldn't sniff an NBA court. Why is it so difficult? Um, the NBA is, is not, a, it's, you know, the difficult part is not the talent and all that, those things, those elements are not what makes it difficult from my perspective. Yeah. Uh, what makes it difficult is understanding that there's, you know, a 0.7% chance of kids making it to the NBA from the time they start to the time they finish. Yeah. To understand that there's a certain amount of there's 13 roster spots, I think eight suited up guys, five reserves. Um, there's a yeah. pool of over a, a thousand players they choose from, including international G League now and the players that are on free agency. Um, there's also the veterans that the veterans that automatically have positions on teams. Udonis Haslam, um, guys, so on and so forth like that, who come in and create a narrative for that team structure. So there's a another side of it that you know there's a financial uh responsibility that the players should learn that do get the first go ahead from college to get the opportunity to get to the pros there's a college and financial there's a financial burden that they would have to pay attention to before they even get to that point i think with all these elements kids are seeing the highlights and not knowing that all that's waiting for them right yeah. So you go see John Morant do a crazy dunk, like, oh, I, I want to go to the league now. But not knowing John Morant went to a small school and so on and so forth. And you see Damian Lillard at a half-court shot. You're like, oh, I want to be Damian Lillard. But not knowing Damian Lillard went to a small Division One where he was almost overlooked and so on and so forth. You see C.J. McCollum and guys, so on. I could just keep going on and on. Yeah. These guys, the journey itself is much harder than people assume it. And then, just like with anything, there's a certain amount of time and luck you need in order to make the NBA. And these are, these are just my opinions that these are not facts. Yeah, these yeah. are things that I, I've experienced. And then there's a, a whole nother side of it also where you need to, there a pro, a professional athlete does not live the, the, the regular life of an athlete that we're used to. Yeah. So there's a certain element that kids don't know about the pro athlete. They do. They work out four times a day. Yeah. They yeah. are in the gym all day. They have recovery, they have stretch therapy, they have weights, they have jump shots, they have pool work, they have five on five, half court, just shooting day, just weights day. And the list goes on. So I think that to put that in a better perspective, the NBA is not just about how good you are. It's about how you can fit in the mold of that fraternity, which the NBA yeah. is. And that's yeah. what will get you over the hump as far as trying to make the league, if you understand the mold of that fraternity and put yourself in the right place, then you're more than likely you'll have a good opportunity to play professional basketball, whether it's NBA or not, you still have the opportunity. Yep. 
two, two, one more urban legend that I need to, to ask you about in this one mm-hmm. um, centers around two of my favorite basketball players, Kobe Bryant and Allen Iverson. Mm-hmm. Rumor has it that uh, you would challenge these guys to play you one-on-one for uh, really large sums of money. Yeah. Did either of them ever take you up on their, on the offer? Because I work for the NBA, I'm not entitled to answer that, but let's just say the challenge part was true and and 100% true. Uh, rest in peace, Kobe Bryant um, showed me so much love as we went through that little process of just challenging him. Um, and Allen Iverson, big shout out to him. Um, Allen Iverson got me my first contract with Reebok. So when I, after I, you know, I won't say too much, but after our confrontation, Get, wink, wink. He, uh, we, we were able to build some sort of friendship, and uh, to tell you the truth, that th- when I challenged them, I was more so, and I, I was an Iverson fan and a Kobe fan, and I felt like they were attacking my original hero, Michael Jordan, and that's why I did it. So I'm yeah. saying it now. They attacked Jordan on a high level, and I felt like Jordan couldn't defend himself, so I had to do it for him. I'm glad you, you. I'm glad you fought for our guy, man. Because I've got to defend now against these LeBron James guys too, and Steph Curry guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah I ended up, ended up having to defend myself because those guys were on another level mentally too. Their mental approach to the basketball world changed my mental approach. Those guys were, you know, all the way dialed in as far as being pros. Can you talk a little bit about um, your mental approach to the game as as it is? Uh, at this stage of your career and how that differs from um, from kind of the uh, the New York days? My mental approach now and the way I approach the game back in my New York days hasn't varied very much. The only difference is now I have children, so my drive and my motivation is a lot stronger. The the, the Everything else is pretty much the same, and except I think What's made it a lot better is I have more information and more things I can do to keep my body healthy. Um, mm-hmm. Now I'm able to maximize on the things I was doing already. Um, I was already working hard and doing all the, you know, the aesthetic stuff and the physical stuff. Now I'm able to do the aesthetic stuff, the physical stuff, and then the recovery stuff. And then I'm also mentally, uh, I'm just mentally healthier. You know, back then I was a young kid and I had the world thrown at me. I was hanging out with Jay-Z and Beanie Siegel when I was watching them on TV at, later that night. It was blowing my mind at the time to kind of balance out the two. But as I matured, most of my friends now are industry in the industry. They're big artists and, you know, shout out to Tank, Chris Brown and so on and so forth. Jamie Foxx, all, all the guys I know very well. These are my friends now, so I'm able to balance and roll it, Rolodex that in a lot more comfortable manner where it's not overwhelming. So my, the, in both aspects. And that's, that's something I want to tap into, too, is specifically, you know, is it harder now? Um, obviously, when you're, you've got youthful knees and youthful energy um, mm-hmm. versus now, you know, you are in your early 40s and still embarrassing people on the courts, mm-hmm. you know how you you've talked about that wellness and recovery, but do you feel like um, there's a change in how do you specifically keep the drive to keep going? Because they always say in sports age is undefeated, but you and LeBron mm-hmm. seem to have figured out uh, how to make age irrelevant. <laughs> hey, well, you know, and thank you for that. 
I think it's a mentality and it doesn't get, it gets physically harder, obviously, because the body, but once you mentally approach it and put, put it into a better perspective, all of it becomes easier. I don't think my blueprint is fair for the kids to kind of use as a, a chart for how they should see it because I have no idea why I can make anybody fall right now. And as I'm getting older, I can still dunk and I can guard anybody. And I, I just, I'm just aggressive. I'm still, I don't know exactly why, but what I can tell the kids is that my mental approach never changed. I don't celebrate my birthday. I was only born once. So I don't, mm. I don't have the urge to get older. I don't feel like getting older is, I think that's more on a society thing, rushing me to sleep to go to work. I don't mm-hmm. think that's how I want to live my situation, so I don't. So I, I rush to work out. I rush to read. I rush to enhance my mind. I rush to, you know, I talked to Gary Vee about some things before, and he blew my mind. I rush to make new relationships. I rush to do these things instead of rushing to be old, you know? Yeah. So that's how I kind of, um, you know, keep it in all in perspective. And obviously things change physically. I would say this, as you get older, your recovery time is a little longer, but with the right amount of financial support and so on and so forth, you can put your body in, in the best position possible. Obviously, you can see that through LeBron James, spending whatever amount of dollar he needs to make sure his body's okay to play and perform. So there's different ways you can do it, but the main thing is, you know, your mental approach has to be literally dialed in. You cannot be swaying back and forth on, your New Year's resolutions and how you feel this month and oh, what about waking up today? And nah, it's all the same pot. Put it all in the same pot and tie it up and get up and handle your business. That's how it works. Yeah, and this is a key, that's a key inflection point and transition point here to kind of go from your career to kind of understanding, I think, the story um, of, of how you connected with, with the Lasso brand uh, is also an interesting story, and it fits yeah. into kind of this idea of creating better options for mobility and physical health. So I'm going to kind of hand this over to Partha and just let you guys talk about how the relationship started, you know, why it made sense. Obviously, it makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. to have the ankle breaker <laughs> in lasso socks, but it's uh, mm-hmm. it's also an important story in just organic growth and, and building real relationships. Yeah, I think, I think, what'd you say? Pardon me, we're live right now, right? Yeah, yeah. Right, keep going. Yeah, no, oh, I think the thing that stood out to me, Bone, is like, we've known each other, you know, probably four or five years now, right? And mm-hmm. it, it's, I think the thing that I most have enjoyed is that, you know, we are constantly trying things, but we're both also growing as individuals through the process. And just mm-hmm. to, you don't really get people professionally, you know, that you, you get to keep pace with for so long. You know what yeah. I mean? I think that's yeah. been the thing that's most enjoyable about working with you. Thank you. And vice versa. Um, like I said, we, <clears throat> you part to have done something for me that you don't know was special. And I'm going to tell you our first shoot, we went to the, my original court. My dad taught me how to play on. I sat on the rim that my dad beat me on my whole life and took pictures. I stood on the court that I'd never beat my father on. The nostalgia in that day was all I needed to kind of solidify where I wanted to. I wanted to be better than my dad. What better way to be standing on the court with my T-shirt on? Like, what's up, dad? 
Yeah. You want to play me now? Even though the metaphor was for us using it for lasso, it you brought me to a place that didn't that had no no price on it. It was priceless. It was just you know, and and we continue to grow from there because all of our ideas and everything we spoke on then we're still doing now. So yeah. that was something that you know, and to watch your company grow as well because I remember where you where we were where you were when you when you first approached and how where your company was and to see what you're doing now. I know that your journey has been just as special. So big shout out to you too. Hey, appreciate that, man. And I think that's that's the cool thing this time around is that we were able to put together. I mean, so I I love every piece in this collection. I wear it like a lot. It's one of my most commonly worn, especially this crew neck sweater. I wear this thing like I just had it on today. That's why I switched it up. It's so nice. I've been seeing you in the uh, in the recovery videos too, and I love I love seeing you wear the stuff um you know when when we first introduced the product to you i think that was that was really why we formed a connection because we're both really interested in um you know kind of the same thing there which is like hey we have a thing that can keep you healthy for longer exactly and that's that's another note on another note you not only provided the visual aspect for it your product literally was a, was something i would put on because you know every person has something they put on to kind of feel their confidence. But your socks, when I put them on, they because, I mean, to be honest, I have bad feet from dribbling and doing all these things outdoors. When you have bad toes and your feet hurt and all these things, I don't like to have my ankles taped, but you should in all, in all cases when you're a pro, get your ankle stability really solid. You're, you know, you, every player has this sort of thing they use for confidence, whether it's socks or shorts or do-rags or finger sleeves arm sleeves you know one knee brace like michael jordan used to just put the knee brace on his calf so he didn't even use it for his knee he just wanted it in his calf we didn't know why but it was something that gave him a feeling right it gave him some sort of feeling on the court your socks these lasso socks once i put them on it secured my feet because i'm didn't have i had no idea that when manipulating your feet and cutting and moving all these ways you're actually playing football in a way you actually just, you know, those running backs or feet are always moving. I did research on what type of, you know, sock that you were trying to provide. And I realized that stability was what your sock was primarily like mastering or, or kind of, you know, embodied. So when I was putting on the socks and going out and playing, it was just a win-win all the way around the board. I was able to perform and do what I had to do. And then on top of that, you start to give me shirts like the one I have on now. I don't play in t-shirts, but this t-shirt is comfortable. I can do a podcast in it, or I can go and score 40 on you. In it. Like it's, it's so comfortable to the point where I felt if we collaborate, my, my fan base would love to go out and support themselves and go out and have fun in some clothing that not only look cool, but it feels good. So, Big shout out to you guys. You guys have created a product that will last forever. And thank you. That's like, it's insane because working together, like I, I started the company after I broke my ankle playing ball. It wasn't because I got crossed over. It's because I landed on someone. So let's just put that on the record. But it, uh, <laughs> no, it, it started from that experience. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the, the goal and desire from day one was just that, you know, I just feel like, I feel like 
you can make things that people wear that improve how they move. And I feel like we should all just be thinking like that when we get dressed. Exactly. Yeah. Forget how it looks. How do you feel in it? Yeah. Because that's, that's ultimately like what matters, right? Like when you're 60, 70, 80, what matters is how you took care of your body that affects so much more of your life than people realize. And also the can and also the, the greatest challenge that people typically face is, as you said um, earlier, Bone, that, you know, any athlete who's playing competitively consistently should tape their ankles. But it's a process and it's work to tape your ankles, a product yeah. that can also make it easier to do that and get that protection where you just have to pull your sock up. The yeah. fact that in a space like this, innovations like this haven't occurred sooner um, is interesting in itself, but the fact that this innovation did occur, I think any athlete can now have the benefits of taping their ankles without actually taping their ankles. And so people are yeah. getting improved stability without having to do the work because it's also not easy to tape your ankles all the time. A lot of times the pros, they have somebody else taping their ankles. And if you're taping it yeah. yourself, it can be challenging. So that's another thing here yeah. that's very unique is, is you know, you are the ankle breaker, but, you know, your ankles are moving quite a bit when you are breaking other people's ankles. So mm -hmm. I'm sure you you definitely appreciate the stability there um, as you as you continue down your down. Your I'm going to show you this chart too, Bone. We got this chart from like this German movement lab and they did foot pressure on lasso socks versus regular socks. And the regular socks, it's like super red on the heels, super red on the ball of the foot because all your pressure builds there. In our socks, it's like nice and, you know, yellowish, orange all the way through. So it's much more distributed. And you can just see in this chart how much each step can impact your entire, you know, foot and the muscles and, you know, everything on the bottom of your foot. Make it sore, make it swell up, make it hurt at the end of a long day. I mean, it's crazy. So anyway, I, I definitely got to show you that. But um, yeah, I can't see that. yeah, man. So, you know, this I think this uh this collection has been a really interesting experience as well because i felt like we we're able to really challenge ourselves in terms of where we got to design wise artistically i thought the shoot was like one of the most fun days we got so many exciting shots that day um yeah, that, was that was awesome and i day. think back to our first shoot where it's just me you and uh and isaiah out in the uh just that basketball court and yeah. uh that was in uh, Pasadena, right? Yeah, right in Pasadena. Yep. We, yeah. I mean, to compare those two, I mean, it's night and day, right? It was crazy. And, you know, I, I know the next one that we do is going to get way crazier. Yeah. And I can't wait. Um, shout out to you guys. You guys have always been very supportive of my brand. And one thing, the reason why the collaboration made sense to me is I wanted to push your agenda as well as support your agenda. And by using my skill set, I can do that without words. So that was the the overall, you know, go end all be all for me with you guys. And thank you guys for everything that we've done so far. And I'm super looking forward to what we got moving forward. Appreciate definitely, it. Thanks for and support. Definitely. And good, good luck in your recovery. We know you're dealing with a a little a little setback injury wise right now, but we yeah, see your rehab. We, we I'll be fine. Yeah, we see you working. So looking forward mm -hmm. to seeing you back on these courts, uh, making more people fall. Absolutely. I'm definitely, definitely <laughs> dialed in. 
I'll be back sooner than you know and better than before. Yeah, thank you guys. Thanks so much for coming on, Bob. Yes, sir. Rally boys, we get on the